Hi, and welcome to Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. I'm your host, Donna Bishop, and I am so excited to start 2020 off with stylist, writer, activist, filmmaker, and awesome human extraordinaire, Sarah J. Sarah, welcome. Happy New Year to you. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Happy New Year. So I want to just start very briefly at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Wow. Well, um, I have a hyphenated job description, that's for sure. Um, I do a lot of different things and have been privileged to uh, be able to follow my passion in many different directions. Um, I grew up in a cow town called Kempville, Ontario, at the time population 2600. Um, my dad worked in agriculture and my mom was an, is an artist and a teacher and a crafter. And so those are huge influences in my life. The creativity was very much a part of your upbringing. So you've been working as a fashion stylist for many years. Your styling work has been published in Harper's Bazaar, Vogue.com, Fashion Magazine, Elle, InStyle, Zinc. I could go on and on. You've worked with some really fancy people like Fergie and Justin Bieber and Penelope Cruz. Is fashion something that has always been a part of your life? What did fashion mean to you when you were young? Oh gosh, it was a dream. I mean, I, I often cite Jeannie Becker and the inspiration that, that fashion television was for so many of us, especially growing up in a small town. Um, definitely, I grew up believing that fashion was something that happened in Paris and New York and Milan. And I didn't really envision a, a career in fashion. I didn't sort of grow up thinking that it was viable. But uh, when I moved to Toronto and realized that the fashion magazine head offices were a block away, um, I pursued an internship there and realized that there is a viable industry and it's only, it's only growing in momentum. Do you have a moment when you remembered that or when you realized that fashion was more than just the clothes you wore? Do you have a moment where that became kind of clear to you? Gosh, I have so many moments. Um, it is armor for me. Um, I was a synchronized swimmer and played a role, you know, as early as, you know, 11 or 12 um, in designing the bathing suits that matched the music, that matched the choreography. And, and definitely that, looking back on the timeline of my life, that is something that definitely makes sense when you, when you look in, in retrospect. Um, it is something that helps equip me and it helps me feel stronger. It helps me feel like myself and it equips me for social situations. And I fundamentally, I'm really motivated by giving that feeling to other people. How do you do that as a stylist? Like, how do you, are you reading the person? Because I imagine there's like, there's certainly editorial and then there's styling for, you know, personal styling when it's got a different reason. How do you unpack the difference between those? What are some of the joys of being a stylist that really resonated with you? Gosh, well, making other people feel beautiful and seeing, seeing the transformation that they feel from the outside in. Uh, the way that it can change your posture, the way that it can sort of change your sense of self is totally rewarding. And as a result, I really love dressing musicians and performers and professionals who, for whom fashion really is a tool. 
and it helps them feel powerful and better equipped to go out and face the world and do their thing. Do you have a moment that comes to mind when you were working with maybe a musician or a performer where you kind of saw that transformation before your eyes, where you saw someone put something on and they changed a little bit? I think it's maybe the most apparent when when I dress non-celebrities, you know, who are maybe less familiar with that feeling. I find a lot of celebrities know the power of styling, know the power of a perfect face of makeup. And I feel that, um, you know, often when it's someone's first time with a, with a stylist, um, that's when you really see the transformation the most. So fashion and activism are two very interweaving lines and, and journeys that you have been on. Activism often comes from a very personal experience. What inspired your activism within the fashion and the beauty industries? And we're going to get into some of the specific actions, but what inspired you to even look that way in those industries? Well, becoming an activist isn't something that I planned. You know, I pursued fashion for fashion's sake. I was seduced by the beauty and wanted to contribute and be a part of that beauty. Um, I didn't plan for the existential crisis that it became, and I was, I am a stylist, which means I shop, which means I am constantly face-to-face -face with the excess of it all. And early on, you know, before we were having these conversations, really, um, in a pre-Rana Plaza world, um, I was struggling with it. I was struggling with where does all this clothing come from? Where is it made? Why is it off-gassing and giving me a headache? Your natural curiosity just sort of led you to think about it. And in 2007, that was a very, that was kind of an important year in terms of where fashion and your activism could come together. What happened that year? Well, a few things happened that year. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of the films that were you know, in, in our sphere, um, an inconvenient truth had really sort of provided a bit of context during that time. I met Kelly Drennan, the founder and, um, you know, powerhouse behind Canada's only NGO that addresses fashion's impacts, which is Fashion Takes Action. Of which you've been the creative director since the beginning of that organization? Yeah, and I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, Kelly is, you know, absolutely a mentor and an inspiration and an ally. Um, and again, in a pre-Rana Plaza world where these conversations were not mainstream, we were attempting to bring awareness to the social and environmental impacts of, of fashion. And what was the reaction to those conversations when you first started trying to have them or having them within the industry? Well, I mean, people, people were concerned. Anytime, you know, you can get people's ears and eyes on a subject matter and open them up, you know, people become concerned. But in terms of being able to direct them to alternatives and, you know, safe, ethically made alternatives, there definitely weren't as many as there are now. So I'm really proud to have played such a big role in our country and internationally um, in terms of making these this curiosity about where things come from mainstream. You played a big role in the green shows uh, in New York Fashion Week. Tell us a little bit about what those are and how you came to work there. Wow, well, the, the green shows um, is something I look back on with such fondness because, again, it was 
it was really groundbreaking to have done what we did. Uh, the Green Shows was a standalone event. It was part of uh, Mercedes-Benz Fashion, Fashion Week. It's been a pop-up. Um, it's had different incarnations over the years, but always in support of designers who are trying to show integrity from materials to supply chain to manufacturing. Um, and I was always really proud of the events that we produced and curated. And you were producing and styling and marketing and hustling and, and, and picking up printing if the printing was being made at all. What was, what was like the, the grit and the hustle must have been huge. Yeah, I've been in startup mode, it feels, you know, for most of my career. And we were a small team at the Green Shows, but we produced an unbelievable result. And you mentioned signage, and there was actually a moment uh, one year where our signage was late, and it hadn't been posted. And obviously, when you're showing multiple designers, it's key to be able to indicate, you know, on the runway what we're looking at. And I had to sort of have the conversation with myself that it might not show up. And if it doesn't, this still looks like fashion. And I take seriously a fashion-first approach to sustainability. I mean, if it isn't fashionable, uh, why bother? You've mentioned Rana Plaza a couple of times. And of course, in 2013, that was the, the collapse of that factory and really put on the global consciousness what labor was doing in terms of the fashion world. You actually visited Rana Plaza. What was it like to go there, knowing the catastrophe that had happened and knowing everything you know about the industry leading up to that trip? It was an incredibly emotional trip, to say the least. Um, incredibly difficult and uncomfortable conditions, and I understand why so few people, so few journalists have, have gone and covered the subject, you know, on the ground. Um, it's a huge space in a bustling, busy, um, dirty part of, you know, of Dhaka. And the space itself, you know, I visited a year and a half after the collapse, and the space itself was still littered with the contents of a factory. You know, you could see everything from sewing machine, you know, wreckage to bolts of fabric to garment tags from, you know, the retailers that we all know were involved. Um, and still, you know, locals visiting every day to grieve and to mourn. What were some of the conversations you had with family members who were involved in Rana Plaza? Gosh, it's very interesting. Um, I heard so many different stories from, from people who survived, people who worked there themselves, and, and family members who lost loved ones. And everyone's stories were, were different. You know, some, some people reported um, a positive working experience and being grateful for the work. Really? It's true. And then other, other people spoke of an awareness of the exploitation and an awareness of forced labor and modern slavery and an awareness of the cracks and fear going to work and the withholding of wages. So not everybody's experience was the same. 
and definitely I came away from um, speaking with, with these people um, with a new appreciation of that and what work means for locals and what work means for women to be able to contribute to the household and be independent and bring home a paycheck. It sounds like that experience challenged some assumptions that we have about the people who worked there or what their motivations and experiences were working in the garment industry. Or what the solutions are to the issue. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think it's going to be easier to replace this type of labor with robots than it is going to be to provide the working conditions that the international labor force, you know, really deserves. That's fascinating. What makes you say that? Well, um, to retrofit all of these factories and make sure that they're safe and to make sure that there are fire exits, to make sure that, you know, to, to provide a living wage, the current fashion business model doesn't account for that. So definitely, I, you know, the trend is to, to replace these jobs with electronic bots. In 2018, you had a wonderful full circle moment with Fashion Magazine as you came on as the guest editor for the sustainability issue. What was it like to come back as an editor to the magazine that you started your career with? Yeah, it was a really beautiful moment. Um, at the time, Noreen Flanagan was the editor, and she absolutely has such a deep understanding of, of the challenges that we face in, in fashion, and she absolutely fanned my flame and um, encouraged all of my big ideas. And, you know, I'm really proud of what we were able to achieve in that, in that issue, absolutely which includes an editorial shot at the Value Village Reuse Facility in Etobicoke. Love. Um, a carbon offset of the materials themselves in association with uh, Holt Renfrew's H Project and Carbon Zero. Um, so those are, those are major moves for a Canadian fashion magazine. So, what did, you, did you notice anything that had evolved from being in the print media years prior to being there as a guest editor, were there conversations that were different? Were there different, um, you know, kind of touch points or, or things that were up for discussion? Absolutely. The energy um, in 2002 versus, um, I guess, 2018 was entirely different. Um, discussions about inclusivity, representation, diversity, sustainability. We weren't talking about those things you know, before. How exciting was it to be there in, in this different time and kind of have that closed circle moment? Yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for it. Um, there's so few Canadian publications and to, so few pages to really contribute to, and fashion is a notoriously competitive industry, so it was really meaningful for me to come back to the place that I started to make the contribution, the unique contribution that I'm hoping to make, and to come at fashion uh, from this perspective of, of awareness of its impacts. Tell me a little bit about the editorials that you got to style and how that fashion-first lens could be executed with so many more brands that made sense for your philosophy. Yeah, I mean, what I like to share with people is that um, sustainability really is a spectrum. It's not 
maybe possible to be entirely sustainable. So what I did with the editorial was to highlight the aspects of sustainability and the, the choices that designers can make to be more sustainable socially and environmentally. So we had things like, you know, reuse and vintage clothing. We had vegan leather. We had organic fibers. We had um, products from the H Project collection that have a social impact. So I did my best to curate the story for very specific reasons to represent this spectrum of sustainability so that people can understand um, how big the impacts of fashion really are. You've done so much. I, there's so much more we could talk about in terms of fashion, but I want to pivot into the other side of the fashion coin, which is beauty. You have worked on a number of really interesting films. How did you meet the late Rob Stewart? Gosh, well, he's one of those people that I can't actually pinpoint when I met him, but um, definitely through Canada as a small town and through the environmentalist community. And um, he was Mr. Shark, and I am Mrs. Fat Miz, fashion and beauty. And we ended up collaborating on on a project that was perfectly suited for us both, and really represents both of our both of our respective areas of expertise. Tell us about the, the cycling costume you made for Rob. <laughs> yes, Rob and I have had several collaborations over the years, but he was doing a, uh, a charity uh, race across France and, of course, needed to look like a shark and insisted that it be sustainable and functional. And so I, I designed him a shark cycling suit complete with an airbrushed helmet that had teeth on the underside and a shark fin backpack that could carry his speaker so he could have beats on the on the way. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it, it was really wonderful. We've done beautiful work over the years. Well, and Rob, of course, is the director brainchild behind uh, Sharkwater and Sharkwater Extinction, uh, the latter of which you had the wonderful experience to work on. What did working with someone like Rob teach you about passion and environmentalism and communicating that message? Um, that there's room for more than one approach. And there's room for, um, for each of us to share our authentic um, perspective on a subject. And I've learned that for me, my approach needs to be collaborative. Um, it needs to be non-confrontational, which isn't to say that it can't be disruptive, but um, definitely having a, a supportive, um, compassionate approach is, is important for me. And, you know, at times we butt heads, but we were playing for the same team and we were on the same team. Uh, you've had some disruptive moments in your past. Tell me about when you attended the P&G Beauty Awards. Uh, what year would it have been? 2010 or 11, I guess. I was invited to attend the Procter & Gamble Beauty Awards where many you know, friends in the community were being recognized for their editorial work. Um, I struggled a little bit, of course, uh, given at the time um, 
Procter & Gamble's stance on sustainability, which definitely has improved, um, and thought to myself, how can I attend this event while being authentic to my values and to, at the time, my work with environmental defense on, on the Just Beautiful campaign, which, of course, we shared together. So I found this fantastic backless dress and had my dear friend Marissa apply a soy tattoo to the open back of this dress and it read P&G, go toxin free. And oh, it even rhymed! <laughs> um, I was equipped with some campaign materials in my clutch and of environmental defenses just beautiful campaign yeah which talked about the dirty dozen which are the priority ingredients for removal and reconsideration coined by the wonderful david suzuki so i i rolled into this event looking very chic and armed with my values on my back and um only ended up staying a few minutes. It caused a bit of a sensation in terms of the photographers that were there that knew me, and I felt sort of the energy of the crowd sort of shift and interest, you know, being, you know, centered around this sort of performance art stunt, but I ended up being asked to leave. Really? Yeah. Despite, despite for me what was relatively peaceful, um, I did sort of see in the faces of the young, you know, PR girls um, that they weren't they weren't ready to have those conversations, and they didn't really know what to do with me, and um, and so that was a learning experience, you know. It was a learning experience. How so? Um, just in terms of coming face to face with what with what someone's constructive disruption can mean, you know, from the other side. And definitely I wasn't there to, to cause any harm, just to bring awareness. Um, but definitely I'm also happy to report that, you know, times are absolutely changing. And if I had done that this year or if I do it again, um, I think the conversation would be different and we'd have the words, we'd have the terms, and they'd have the uh, sustainability platform to refer to um, to sort of satisfy the questions and the concerns that I, I brought with me on that night. You worked long on the foundation of the award-winning film Toxic Beauty. Before we talk about the film, I want to go back and say, what's your relationship with beauty? As fashion was very much a part of your early days, what's the relationship with beauty been in your world through the years? Well, beauty is really fashion for your face, really. So, I mean, they're, they're quite um, symbiotic and inextricable, really. Um, I have chemical sensitivities that uh, were acquired um, several different ways. Notably, as a swimmer, I have suffered a chlorine overexposure. Um, definitely, I was the kid with every possible color of hair pierced and tattooed and painted enthusiastically. Um, and I also suffered from cystic acne and attempted to, to cure it orally and topically with pharmaceuticals, which ended up causing a host of, of health issues for me. 
So now these chemical injuries have resulted in what's called MCS. And uh, what's MCS? Multiple chemical sensitivity is a chronic illness, which makes me really sensitive to uh, things like fragrance and personal care products. And it's quite tough for me to be in public. It's quite tough for me to be on public transit or in a taxi or on a plane or in a cinema where I'm close to other people who may have just showered or are covered in perfume or even walking my dogs and being exposed to laundry, you know, fragrance in my neighborhood um, is very, very tough. So um, early on, you know, I guess in my I guess in my 20s, because it's gotten worse with age as the chemicals accumulate in our bodies, um, it's thought that if you have multiple chemical sensitivity, you have what's what's called a high chemical body burden, which is something that we test and look at in the film. Fashion sets are not known for their uh, anti-scent environments. What was working on, on, like whether you're styling for a commercial client or an editorial client, like how did you, how did you manage that? Were you having conversations with the other people on the set? What was that like? Yeah, it's, um, it causes a lot of anxiety for me, uh, knowing that I will be going into an environment that, uh, you know, where aerosol sprays are, are often used. And luckily, you know, because awareness has grown, a lot of artists um, are absolutely compassionate to my plight and to my condition, and they are willing to accommodate. And, uh, you know, there's workarounds. I just sort of dodge the aerosol spray and, you know, request a fragrance-free moisturizer. These types of things really, really help for me. Um, but it really is difficult. And we don't necessarily think of uh, fashion as being a toxic, dirty work environment, but it definitely is. And anyone who's working in fashion or beauty actually has a higher than average chemical body burden. Um, it's a workplace risk. Tell me about how you started laying the foundation for, for Toxic Beauty. White Pines, the production company, came in eventually. But in your early days, how were you accumulating information? What did starting that process look like for you? Well, at the time, I was working on a lot of makeover shows and couldn't help but feel that we weren't improving the baseline that needed to be improved. We weren't um, addressing what needed to be addressed. And so Toxic Beauty, for me, um, began as a green makeover show that aimed to give you a green makeover and measure your chemical body burden and improve it by changing your cosmetics. One of the uh, storylines that Toxic Beauty follows is someone who is an absolute uh, beauty fan, and her she goes through the process of measuring her, her body burden. What was it like seeking someone out to participate in that way in the film? Well, the woman that you're speaking of is Mimi, and we were lucky to to come across her as a as a source and as a storyline, you know, in the process. And the sort of tension of her character is that she is a med student hoping to study endocrinology, uh, but she's also an enthusiastic, um, you know, makeup. She's a makeup enthusiast, um, and. I relate to her struggle because I've had the same struggle of loving these products and loving the transformation, loving it all, but 
feeling really concerned and torn when you start to be aware of, of what it really means for your health. I think that's something really interesting just to pause on for a minute is I think there can be this assumption that those who are critical of the beauty industry or the fashion industry aren't fans of the industry. Word. Absolutely. Um, I'm really grateful that you brought that up because if this weren't worth saving, I would not be trying so hard. You know, I am not anti-makeup or anti-fashion or anti-any of it. I just believe that we can do these things and participate in these things and create these things that bring so much joy without causing anyone any harm. And I'm committed to that. So absolutely, I'm a, a fashion and beauty conservationist of sorts. You know? <laughs> I'm going to add that to your bio, fashion beauty conservationist. Um, one of the other integral parts of toxic beauty is following the Johnson & Johnson talc class action. For people who haven't seen the film yet, what is that storyline about? That was an important storyline for us, um, largely because... It's a product that we've all used. It seems so innocuous. It really does. And, and that's also part of the, you know, the tension and, and why it was so important. Um, I used to use baby powder in my bathing cap to sort of prevent it from getting sticky and moldy. Um, there's 101, you know, uses, and it was really inclusive. And all the more tragic that this product or this series of products that are, you know, marketed you know, to new mothers and, and to babies and that we start to use, you know, so young and often carry on that habit throughout life, um, this really trusted brand is causing ovarian cancer. And since the film's launch, which was at the 2019 Hot Docs Festival um, in Toronto, it's a, won awards at other uh, film festivals uh, around the world. Since the film launched, Johnson & Johnson has had several um, class actions, uh, you know, they have, they've had to pay, like they've lost in court. Um, what does it mean to be, you know, part of that conversation and seeing the tides turn that way? It's why I spent 10 years trying to get this film made. It's beyond rewarding. Um, it may shock us to realize that the FDA and Health Canada don't have the authority to take products off of store shelves. They maybe don't want the authority to take products off of store shelves, but there's been so much concern around the, the talc case and, like you said, settlements, um, because there is a causal link between talc and asbestos and ovarian cancer. Um, there, there was a recent recall of, of talc, so we're starting to see, you know, the more we talk about it and the more we turn up the heat on these brands who are knowingly selling products that are cancerous. Well, um, when people see the film, you'll, because I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but the way that that is revealed in the film is so powerful. What was it like meeting Dean? Tell us a little bit about Dean. Dean Berg is my hero, and I, I really can't wait for, for everyone to, to meet this hero who essentially walked away from enough money to live you know, in luxury for the rest of her life 
in order to share the message and share the truth about what baby powder can do to you, which is cause ovarian cancer. So I, I really can't wait for you to hear her story. We're looking down the barrel of 2020. It's a time when many people reevaluate life choices and habits, and we're fueled with the energy of wanting to, you know, do better and improve. What are some things from your perspective that people can do really easily to bring a greater sense of, a sense of consciousness and, and clean living to their lives? Well, we, we spend a lot of time worrying about what we eat. And, you know, many of our New Year's resolutions are, are centered around diet. And I would encourage everyone to sort of think about what you're applying in the same way that, you know, we think about what we're ingesting. Um, there's a couple of great resources in terms of navigating the the marketplace of, of personal care. It's incredibly overwhelming. There's so many products. There's a million ingredients on those labels. Where do you go? What do you do? Um, I would suggest immediately downloading Think Dirty. That's an app? Uh, that's an app. Um, you know, made by our dear friend Lily, um, which allows you to search and scan the products that you're using. Um, it gives you a toxicity ranking 1 to 10. It breaks down the ingredients so you can start to get to know what the ingredients of concern are, and it recommends um, safe alternatives within the same product category. The Skin Deep Database, Environmental Working Group's Skin Deep Database, essentially does the same thing online. And uh, absolutely, we should be thinking about personal care in the same way that we think about diet. It's the same thing. It strikes me that if there's a patch for birth control and to help us quit smoking, that obviously whatever we put on our skin goes deeper than the surface. Absolutely. Um, and that said, it's a priority to think about deodorant. It's a priority to think about what we're absorbing through our mouths, so all of our dental care. Um, it's absolutely a priority to, to reconsider um, how sensitive we are to what we breathe in, what we eat, and what we apply. Before people roll into the fetal position and cry because it seems like too big a burden to overcome, how do you suggest it not become overwhelming? Well, like I said, the Think Dirty app definitely helps. A quick, a couple of quick tips, avoid the word fragrance. And initially it's going to seem like the word fragrance is on every label you look at, but that word actually represents up to thousands of individual ingredients. It's a proprietary term uh, where brands hide their secret you know, formulas, and that's where the preservatives and the toxins often lie. So. It might seem discouraging because you're going to see that word so often, but it is a straightforward, hard and fast rule to implement um, and to avoid. From a fashion point of view, because it is still very much your, your one true love and, and an, an arena you continue to work in, what is exciting you about the fashion industry these days? That the game is changing that we can't put awareness back in the box, that this new generation that's coming up is, is standing up for um, integrity in supply chains. You know, the younger generation doesn't want to be involved in exploitation of people or planet. And as a result, 
um, entrepreneurs are entering the space, designers are entering the space, and daring to do fashion differently, daring to do beauty differently. And it's the little guys, ironically, it's the independents who are putting the heat on bigger brands to, to step up. And, you know, we're, we're choosing with our dollars. Sarah J, I am thrilled to start 2020 with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Donna. If people want to follow along and see the projects that you have coming up, I'm sure you'll be sharing on your channels where Toxic Beauty is being screened. Where can they follow you? At Sarah J Style, S-A-R-A-H-J-A-Y Style on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much. You can follow me at This Is Donna B. You can follow Fashion Talks at Fashion Talks Pod. A big thank you to CAFA, our producing partner with this podcast. You can learn more about the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards at C-A-F-A-W-A-R-D-S. Thank you to Cadillac Fairview for hosting us at the Eaton Centre. Wishing everyone a beautiful 2020. Until next time, I'm Donna Bishop, and this is Fashion Talks. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs>